0: All right. Uh, Let's us open our Bibles. There's more than two of us, but let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So just so you know what I'm doing, I've got a a message today from 1 Corinthians. And then Thursday night of this week, you'll have 1 Corinthians again and going forward. On Thursday nights, the Bible study will be 1 Corinthians and next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll go back to Acts in Acts 19. Our Father in heaven, this letter in the Bible is written and it seems to rebuke and correct a lot of things that were wrong. We don't read this letter so we can think back about how bad some church in history was. We read this letter so we can learn its lessons for ourselves. I just recognize, Lord God, so clearly that you have this letter here in the New Testament because these issues are common. They're common in churches and they're common in people's lives. And so we thank you for 1 Corinthians. And thank you that we can read it and study it together. And I pray that you would help all of us to receive the invaluable, precious instruction that is here. Your word is powerful. And I pray that your word would teach us all now. We have you, the Holy Spirit, in us to teach us. And we pray that you would teach us now. And I pray that you would strengthen everyone who hears to be a doer of the word, and not a hearer only. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray. Amen. So so we started last week by reading through the opening of the book. And let me just read it again, not going through it really, but I just wanted to point out one more thing. I really didn't say too much about verse nine, but just listen to the opening of this book again. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, I didn't really point this out last week, but what gets mentioned an awful lot in those... That's, that's three sentences, by the way. It's, it's, it counts as nine verses in the New King James Version, but, but it's actually in the English translation, in the grammar. It's three sentences. What gets mentioned an awful lot there? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is mentioned nine times in those three sentences, you think, you think that like that's on purpose? Of course it is. You think there's some kind of point that the Lord is trying to make through the writing of the Apostle Paul there? So we're about to enter a section of this letter that dominates now the next almost like a quarter of the book. right? This whole idea of the fact that they had factions, they had sects in their church. That, was, uh, that is something that dominates the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, all of chapter 3, and most of chapter 4. It's such a big issue. And so he introduces the book by pointing out to them that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of everyone who calls on his name in that church and in every church. That was in verse 2. The greeting in verse 3 is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The grace that was given to us, according to verse 4, was given by Jesus Christ. In verse 7, we're told that we're eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In verse 8, we're told that we're going to be, by His grace, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. And he could stop there, but one more time he names Jesus Christ, our Lord, in case you didn't get it, right? So he's trying to give them in the introduction there, I think on purpose, a very heavy dose of the name Jesus Christ to remind them what, as he gets ready to go into this next section, it's not about us. It's not about people. We are the beneficiaries of the new covenant and we work hard in ministry and we apply our hearts and our talents and our time and our ability to serving the Lord. But in the end, what is it all about? It's about the glory of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, verse nine says, is faithful. That is God stays with us, right? By whom You were called into the fellowship of His Son. So God called you not just into church. God did not call you just to go to heaven one day. What does it say? That God who is faithful called you into the fellowship of His Son. Whoa. Fellowship means to share. God the Father called me to share in fellowship to share in life to share in the blessing of the new covenant with his son the lord jesus christ right that wasn't that wasn't like the person who first witnessed to me though god used someone to witness to me that wasn't like any particular pastor or any particular preacher Listen we we ought to like love and 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 care for and and be grateful for and respect and encourage people who preach and teach and, and are good in the Word, but at the end of the day it 's not them who have called us into anything; it is God who has called us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our lord right and that 's what kind of sets up this next section here is just that annunciation of the fact that This is all Christ's. This is all the fruit. The fruit of what God did through Jesus Christ our Lord is all of these redeemed people who believe on His name all over the world. Right? And He didn't just save us so we could continue to walk through our lives any old way we want with like just some some cheap guarantee that we'll go to heaven one day. He saved us because we've been called into fellowship. That is, our lives now are in communion. Our lives are shared with the one who saved us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are all about living for the glory of the Lord. Not about carnal pursuits. Carnal. There's a word to get used to when you study 1 Corinthians. More on that in just a moment. Ready? Let's read now, starting in verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that would be the 10th time already, that his name is not, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas or Peter, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. (laughs) For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. (laughs) Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Yeah, amen is right. For it is written... to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see, your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Ready? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Amen. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That as it is written, let he who glories, let him glory in Yahweh. Let him glory in the Lord. Amen? Now, that's, that's really not even the end of it. You can see kind of what's going on here. I want to expound in my time here, if I can, the rest of the whole thing there, the whole chapter, if we can do it. Don't know if we can or not, but there is a key in the text that we didn't read yet that I think is the key to understanding virtually everything that this section and even everything that the book presents as a rebuke or a correction. There is one thing that is at the source of it all. I made passing reference to it a moment ago. And I want you to see that first. Because it's obvious that what you're going to get in 1 Corinthians, if you're familiar with it at all, is kind of issue after issue. You have this issue with sectarianism, factionalizing, you know, out of loyalty to men and not Christ. Then you come to issues of sexual immorality in the church. You come to issues of such... Division that, that brothers and sisters in the church were suing each other and taking each other to court. You have all sorts of mayhem going on in marriages and divorces and remarriages and everything else. You have, you have people doing all sorts of things to make one another stumble. This is the book that includes the famous passage that even in their worship services even when they would come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it was so messed up that the Lord intervened on that holy occasion and some of them had grown physically sick and had even died. That's in 1 Corinthians. Their, Their worship assemblies had become so unrecognizable as anything holy through ecstatic forms of worship and even speaking that masqueraded as speaking in tongues that he actually had to say in here, I'd rather you say five things that make sense than 10,000 words with a tongue. I'm paraphrasing that. But that's basically what he says. Right? that's, That's how... Far now, we don't look at this, just remind you, you're going to get reminded of this a lot over the upcoming months, on Thursday nights especially. We don't look at this and say, wow, what a bad church that is. We don't look at this and say, wow, what a bad church that is, or that is, or that is, or that, boy, look at, they do that, they do this, they do that. You look at this and you take its lessons for yourself. You look in the mirror and want to see. There is one thing that this letter presents that I believe is at the heart of all of it. Turn to, just turn a couple pages ahead. Let's peek ahead. Look at chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3. When, you're in, when, you, when you get into chapter 3, you're still on the issue, by the time we get to chapter 3 and end chapter 4, we're still going to be on the issue of this sectarianism, they're factionalizing. It was such a big issue. He wrote a lot about it. But here he gets at what's behind it. So you get all those issues that I just mentioned, but there's there's a common thing that's behind it all. And here it is. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive, and even now you're still not able. Why? Verse 3. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal? Behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And that's what leads to everything that's going on in this church. (coughs) In chapter 2, it says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. But these are not natural people. There's a difference between natural people and carnal people. The natural man is the unredeemed man. The natural man is someone who has not been saved yet. The natural man is the man who is just in his natural state, a descendant of Adam. He's not been born again. That which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit of spirit, Jesus told Nicodemus. You need to be born again, right? Born, not just born of water, but born of the spirit, right? The natural man has not been born of the spirit. The natural man is still dead in his trespasses and sins, and that person can't receive the things of the spirit of God. But what they were doing was they were living carnally. To live carnally, listen to this and get this, to live carnally is to live as if you're a natural man, even though you're not. And you may think to yourself, well, that doesn't even sound like it should be possible. It absolutely is. It's the reason why this letter is in the Bible, because it wouldn't even be here if it weren't. And there are other statements that will go over as time goes by in the Bible that imply the same thing. The reason I believe that God has included First Corinthians in the New Testament is because there can be this tendency and this inclination for Christians to not live like they're Christians. For Christians to walk... What does the word carnal mean? Flesh. Right? Isn't, isn't in Spanish, isn't carna basically like the word for meat or, or flesh? Right? Right? I mean, that's what I mean. I mean, carnal. It means It means to walk in the flesh. And, and what he's speaking of here is not just the outworking of how they live, but he's speaking of how they think. When he speaks of them being carnal, he's talking about their attitude towards what's, rest of, what's left of their life here on earth. You're redeemed. You've been born again when you believe on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming or where it's going. Right? So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's like a mighty rushing wind comes in. You're born again. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But then you're commanded, as you read through Scripture, to also what? Walk in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. Right? And when we don't walk in the Spirit, we don't live in the Spirit, it's not that we lose our salvation or we're not really saved or anything like that. It's that what remains remains the fleshly vessels that we inhabit, they still rear their ugliness in our lives. And we have to guard against that. And there's only one remedy for not being carnal, and that is to be spiritual, to pray, to study Scripture, to meditate on Scripture, to worship, to praise God, to have godly spiritual fellowship among brethren. All the things that Acts chapter 2 tells us that the early church devoted itself to. Right? The apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, prayer. All those things the early church, they are the only remedy against walking carnally. When we get out of that, we slip into the flesh. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul put it like this. Ready? For those who live according to the flesh, ready, listen, set their minds on the things of the flesh. So living according to the flesh, which means to live to just satisfy whatever your earthly desire may be seeking after. Where does that start? Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Look, the only remedy for not living carnally is to get your mind in the right place. And when Satan tries to drag us down, that's what he's primarily after, I think, is he goes after the minds of believers. What do you fill your mind with? Listen, he goes on in Romans 8 and verse 6 to say, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's the whole issue right there. Because, ready, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Can't. And flesh, carnal, same word, basically. You walk carnally, you can't please God. We can't please God in our flesh. We can't please God in our own strength. We can't please God if we're not walking in the Spirit and we're just letting the desires of our flesh govern and dictate everything that we do. If we're just filling up our minds with things that amuse and things that stir up fleshly desires and things that draw us away from our love and our passion for the things of God. You're not going to please God because you've not done what it says in Colossians 3, which is to set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. You see? God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. God made his flesh, but his flesh had no life. God breathed into him and he became a living soul. Who Adam really was, was what he was inside. What God made him, right? When Adam died, his soul continues to live. But his body decayed and returned to the dust from which it was formed. That's a path all of us, every single one of us, will take one day. I am the living soul that God made me to be, this living soul inhabits a vessel, which is my body. One day, it will give out and die, and it will decompose and return to the basic elements that it came from. But who I am, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, has been redeemed. I will go to be with the Lord forever. And in the end, the dead in Christ rise first. And in the twinkling of an eye, even those who are alive and remain are changed, new bodies, transformed into something immortal. That's coming, but I'm not there yet. Who I really am has been redeemed, but this flesh has the propensity to drag down. That's why I am called to not walk in the flesh. And walking in the flesh starts with thinking in the flesh. You get it? The natural man can't get this. The spiritual man, this is, this is our life, man. The spiritual person, the one who's been born again, the one who's been redeemed, this is our life. This is what was the problem at Corinth. They were carnal thinkers. They were carnal thinkers. And the manifestation of their carnal thinking was all of that stuff that I listed before as you go chapter by chapter through 1 Corinthians. And again, not for us to look back and say, huh, glad I wasn't part of that church. Dare I say, you are. Because the letter was written to the church in its entirety through all the ages. You may not go to the first whatever church of Corinth. You go to Fellowship Bible Church in Woodbridge. But this is written to us. We must guard against carnal thinking. Because carnal thinking leads to carnal living. And carnal living leads to everything that gets rebuked and corrected in this book. And that's why the book is here, because this is common among Christians and among churches to do battle with all of these things. That's a pretty good introduction to the book, I think. I'm pretty happy with that. Now, 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 let's break down the specific issue. Right. So now, look. Oh, by the way, you, you, remember when we studied Galatians? This, 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 this is cool. The issue in Galatians was different. Remember? You remember what the issue in Galatians was? They had corrupted the gospel by saying the people, the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Faith wasn't enough, right? And in the context of that, he described how that was a manifestation of of carnal living. It wasn't spiritual at all. Nobody can keep the law. The law just condemns us. The purpose of the law is to show us that we're sinful, right? That's all Galatians. You remember what conclusion he reached in Galatians? It's the same thing that applies here, even though the specific issue is different. This church isn't having a, a, a specific problem with understanding what the gospel is, but the result is the same. It dragged them down into carnality. It dragged them down into carnal thing. You remember what he said to the Galatians? I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. Do you see that? That's a picture of the war that goes on inside every Christian. Romans chapter 7, famously, when Paul talks about doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he does want to do, what a miserable man that I am. That's the same thing that he's talking about there. That's what preceded the verses from Romans 8 that I just read to you when he talked about setting your mind on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. So if you're a Christian, here's what I'm going to tell you. This ought to matter to you. If you're in Christ, by God's grace, through faith, you are saved. Hallelujah. You've been reconciled to God. He has left you here now to walk. And your walk is not just a fatalistic existence where whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and that's it. You are given guidance and instruction in God's word for how you ought to live. You're not trying to redeem yourself. You're not trying to keep yourself saved. You're not trying to impress God. You're certainly not trying to impress other people. But God has an interest in us functioning as his ambassadors in this life. And we must walk worthy. So I trust that listening to 1 Corinthians will make you take the battle seriously. Recognize it's a battle for you. You inhabit a condemned fleshly body that will one day die and return to the dust that it's made out of. But the living soul that you are is redeemed, will always be with the Lord, and will one day inhabit a new immortal body, not subject to corruption. So how you live now, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Only a Christian who has been born again and received God's holy spirit can do that. In Corinth they had a trouble with it and so you have all these issues. The first one it's kind of the first one's kind of sad. And like I told you last week, let me just say it again and remind you. When he gets to chapter 5, when you really get to what the second issue is, the second issue is an issue, a, a really kind of gross issue of sexual immorality that was happening in the church. There was sexual immorality in the church. And it was not just like common, it was like extreme. Read it in chapter five for yourself. He actually says it's re- what's reported among you isn't even reported among the lost world. That's how bad it was. But I point out to you that you would think that something that bad would be where the letter would start. It doesn't. It starts with this. Because I think this is even worse. What they had done. What they did was on a surface level, something that might even seem innocent. They had they had formed cliques. And these cliques had loyalties to individual teachers in the church. And of course, the power that that has in someone who gets sucked into that might make them blind to the damaging effect of it. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like like if, if you get drawn into well, I got saved when Apollos came here, and so my loyalties are to Apollos. Well, I got saved when Paul was here, so my loyalties are to Paul. Well, you know I've been doing some reading and I've been doing some research, and what I've learned is that actually the first one who preached the gospel to us Gentiles was Peter. So my loyalties to Peter. Well, you know what? I'm not going to be loyal to any man. I'm only loyal to Christ. That's exactly what was going on here. And when you're sucked into that, you don't perhaps even notice the harm that it causes. So here comes Paul, the clear, thinking, Holy Spirit-led, outside observer, saying this. Isn't good. Verse 10. I plead with you. Notice the word plead. I plead with you brethren. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who we just mentioned nine times. That look. You all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be perfectly joined together. In the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, careful exposition of that sentence should point out to you that division causes some really important things to suffer. And there's three things that are listed there. Division, this this sectarianism, it causes the unity of their message the, the unity of their message to suffer it causes the unity of their thought their minds to suffer and it causes the unity of their judgment to suffer and all of those things are important their message was the gospel their mind is that which was trained by their doctrine and their judgment was the application of all of the above You understand? Their division caused the ministry of the gospel to be corrupted. Their their division caused their doctrine to be corrupted. And their division caused the application of sound doctrine to be corrupted. Because they were divided. Their divisions were, were rooted in fleshly, carnal loyalties. Listen to what he goes on to say. Right? You see it. Right? He says, I want you to speak all the same thing, because they didn't. One was of Paul, one was of Apollos, one was of Peter, ones were of Christ. They were all over the place. They were all split up in their cliques according to their loyalties. And so Paul to say, I want you to speak the same thing. You know, if somebody, if somebody, if the Lord wants you to speak and to preach, I want the same thing. That this person says, I want what this person says concerning the Lord to be the same as what this person says concerning the Lord. I don't want any of it to be infected by your clickishness, And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. That is to say, I want you to understand the same things and the same judgment. I want you to understand the application of those things that you learn. Carnality leads to division. Division leads to an undermining of the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of making disciples, and the outworking of it in Christian living. And that's what resulted in all of this mess that they had. So guard against it. See what he says? It has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, someone from the church, uh, someone who was able to get word from the Corinthian church to the Apostle Paul, uh, that there are contentions. And the the idea of contentions is they're fighting. See... What could possibly be wrong with being loyal to the Apostle Paul? What could possibly be wrong with being loyal to the Apostle Peter? I'll tell you what. They're fighting with each other. That's wrong, right? In the church, they were fighting with each other. The fights were so deep that in some instances, chapter 6 says they took each other to court outside the church over it. There's a nice testimony of Christianity, right? You You know, brother A is suing brother B. You know, and, and, and they're not having their, their differences settled among themselves where they say Christ is their king and where they say the Holy Spirit lives in them and where they say they love one another. They're going to people who couldn't care anything about the gospel. They're going to people who worship other gods. They're going to people who have no regard for the ways of the Lord to try to find judgments. They're fighting in the church. Chloe wrote to me and said, you guys are actually fighting. And I say to you, verse 12, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, right? I'm of Christ. And then now the the rhetoric that he gives them to try to open up their eyes. Is Christ divided? Obviously not. So if Christ is not divided, it's not okay for you to be divided, right? If Christ himself is not divided, not okay for you either. Uh... Were you? Were you? Was Paul crucified for you? So notice how he uses himself there, right? So he's not—he's not not like—he's not treating a little softer the ones who were loyal to him. He actually uses them as an example and says, "Was I crucified for you, right? Or what? Were you baptized in the name of Paul, right? So it's like, why are you giving allegiance to?" whatever teacher in the church that you prefer, when none of those people did anything to save you and you weren't baptized in their name. Even myself. That's what he says. Verse 14. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. I mean, there's so, there's so few people in this church that he had personally baptized that he can name them. Lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I don't know whether I baptized any other. So what's he trying to say there? He said, I'm really glad. And when he says baptized, what he's, I think what he's talking about is, I led them to the Lord and then I baptized them. Right? Because in New Testament, in the time the New Testament was being written, someone's baptism happened very, very close, typically, to the time that they believed. I mean, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to be baptized, right? And if you haven't been, come and talk to me, because we can take care of that. But at the moment that they get baptized, they get believed. And Paul is like, look, I'm basically what he says is, I'm glad that none of you, are, are, almost none of you, are people that I can say that, like, I led to the Lord, is how we would say it today. And, and, and I didn't baptize any of you, because, you know, then... I might be running the risk of developing a little following for myself. And Paul didn't want that because Paul recognized the danger, the carnality, the division, the undermining of the work of the gospel and discipleship that that kind of clickishness can produce, even when the loyalty was given to himself. That's a nice humble reaction from the Apostle Paul, by the way, isn't it? But he recognizes the danger And then verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. What's he saying there? Do you see those words? Uh, Draw your attention to the last few words of that. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Well, listen, we're kind of trained to think what? You know, God doesn't need us for anything. God can do anything. You know, it's all true in and of itself. But what Paul implies, what is clearly inferred here, is that this division can pull the rug out from under the effect of the preaching of the cross of Christ. In other words, you're going out into the world and you're trying to preach the gospel to people when, 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 when that preaching of the gospel is emanating from a group of people that are actually fighting with each other. Why would anybody want to sign up for that? You get it? The carnality, that's the root. Remember the root. The carnality undermined their unity. The carnality also undermines the power of, of the message and you know everything that he goes on to say here is about the power of the message look what he says in verse 18 for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing right yeah the, the world the world looks at the gospel even to this day and the whole idea of the gospel is just a foolish thing you know but what to us who are being saved it's the power of god you know, i love how there's no middle ground there It's not like, yeah, I I really appreciate the gospel, it's just not for me. That's generally not how people react towards the gospel. Generally, the gospel is, because what is the gospel? That Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died for our sins, was buried, and that he rose from the dead. I mean, the gospel has God coming down, taking human form, dying via crucifixion and being buried and then rising out of the dead, right? Rising out of the grave. The world mocks this. It did then. You can read incidents of it in the Bible. Still does today. However, to those of us who believe, it's not only not ridiculous, it's it's everything to us. It's the power of God. And what Paul is saying is, look, the gospel is everything. The gospel is the only way that God brings salvation to anybody. Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul wrote, as much when he, when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he said, as much as this is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God, to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the gospel of Christ to the world. To the world, the gospel is a foolish message. To those of us who believe and are being saved, we recognize that the righteousness of God is nicely, carefully, powerfully contained in the gospel message. Our sin has been dealt with by Christ's crucifixion and death. And death itself has been destroyed in His resurrection from the dead. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Amen? So Paul goes on to say, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Think think of the power of those words. Set aside for a minute that, you know, sometimes you come to like an Old Testament quote and, You realize he's just trying to substantiate a point that he's trying to make. So you might be tempted to just kind of go over it or gloss over it a little bit. But think of the profundity of that statement. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I don't know if you've noticed, but the wise are pretty proud of their wisdom. Have you noticed that? People who purport themselves to be wise, especially in the modern world, right? I mean, everybody just thinks they know everything. Everything. You don't think so? Spend 10 minutes reading Facebook and you'll realize everybody knows everything. They're proud of it. They love it. And if you say anything different, they'll let you know because they know everything. And the reason there's so much controversy on social media is you have a bunch of people who know everything, even though they know different things, right? And so you get all that. Well, you know what the Lord says? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Right? And bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, which is another word for wise. That's what the gospel does. Coming into a world where everybody knows everything is the one person who does know everything. And that's God. And he comes in not with a bunch of words of human wisdom because that nullifies the power of it. You see, here's, here's here's the grandness. The high, the truly high exaltedness, the glory of the gospel is that God who spoke and brought things into existence, we sang before about how everything just glorifies Him, right? God who has all this immeasurable power and immeasurable wisdom is able to just come into the world with, my son Jesus gave His life for your sins. He was buried and on the third day He rose from the dead. And if you believe, you will be saved. God is able to come in with just that and nothing else and completely transform and redeem eternally any person from any walk of life who will believe. God is able to come into the world. Listen, God doesn't come into the world with, you know, all sorts of complicated stuff that you need to sift through and figure out that only a handful of people can figure out. God comes into the world with something that is so simple that the world that knows everything looks at and says, that's stupid. But the humble person, the humble person who recognizes, listen, the one who is called, even that is all God, the one who is called by him that person recognizes the beauty of it and believes. And, it's, and that's what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is my mission is to preach this simple message that the world hates, but those of us who are being saved love. And your, your clickishness, your carnal clickishness in your church pulls the power out from under it. It's the simplicity of the gospel message that makes it powerful. It's the, it's the very thing that the world says is stupid that makes it powerful. That's, that's what he means when he says, did you notice that one sentence where it was um, verse 21? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message priest to save those who believe. That's the whole point of that. The world with all of its knowing everything about everyone and everything. The world just knows that everyone's an expert. Everybody knows everything, but none of them know God. And then here comes God who made it so that it's not through wisdom that people come to know him. It's through faith. It's through faith in a message that is preached that the world that knows everything looks at and says, that's unwise, that's stupid. And that's why he goes on to say, you know, if I, I'm kind of going through this fast, but we're coming to the end of this. In verse, in verse 22, he says, Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, right? So the, the Jews, they need a religious sign. They kept saying, Jesus, show us. What sign do you show us that we should listen to you, right? And Jesus, you're not going to get any sign. Now, first of all, it's a dumb question to ask, right? I mean, I mean, like I raised that guy from the dead. I healed that guy. I, feel, I, feel, I fed thousands of people with one handful of food. I mean, what else do you want, right? But, but like, it's like, they're like, show us a sign. Show us a sign. And he's like, you're not going to get a sign. The only sign you get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. I'm going to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And that's it. Yeah. His resurrection. That's your sign. That's it. Right. Jews request a sign. They're always looking for signs. Greeks seek wisdom. Wisdom. That's why when Paul, in Acts chapter 17, went to Athens and went to the Areopagus and began to preach, as soon as he preached that Jesus rose from the dead, they all got up to leave. They stopped and that was it because it wasn't wise. They were looking for wisdom. The world looks for what it can park its own mind on and satisfy itself with how smart it is. And if something comes to it that doesn't jive with that, if something comes to that that the world considers to be beneath it, the world rejects it. Well, guess what? Here comes a simple little old message about a man who happens to be the son of God who died and was buried and rose from the dead to bring salvation. And guess what that is? That's foolishness. It's not wisdom. They're looking for some, you know, the Stoic philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers, You know, they're looking for some new philosophy. They're looking for some new humanistic view of things. They're looking for some new theory, some new evolutionary theory. They're looking for some new thing that explains this or explains that. Nope, 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 nope. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose from the dead. If you want to be reconciled to God, your creator, that is it. That's the power of God, right? So Jews request a sign. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness, right? But to those who are what? Called. Called. God is the caller. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, what is the gospel? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, right? In other words, the power of God represents the signs that the Jews are looking for. The wisdom of God represents the wisdom that the Greeks are looking for. In other words, in Christ is everything that they're looking for, but they can't see it because they're proud in their own thoughts. But to those of us who are called, we see it, we recognize it, we humble ourselves, we believe it, and we are saved. and your carnal factionalizing of yourselves into little cliques in your church. Look, I'm here preaching. I'm, think think about this for a minute. I'm standing here right now, and I'm preaching to you something you've heard a hundred or a thousand times before. And yet many of you are saying, amen, praise the Lord, right? Because there's power in it, Right? You know that this is it. That's the Lord giving that to you. That's His Spirit at work in you. But the, but, but the carnality of the cliques, the factionalizing, it was pulling the rug out from under that power. I mean, you take people that love the Lord and want to worship the Lord, and put them in a church and divide them into cliques. It takes all the power out of it. And that's why this is written. And, and listen. He hits this all the way through the end of chapter 4. That, that's how big an issue it is. At the root of it was their carnal thinking. Which led to their carnal living. And their carnal clickishness. Let's, as a church, reject that in our own lives, and in our own church. Let's watch for it. Let's be humble about it. Let's all love one another. Let's give all the glory to our Lord Jesus Christ so that the gospel never loses its power to thrill us, to uplift us, to edify us. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Sorry, I did it again. I don't have time for the last hymn. Hey, guess what? I'm going to close in prayer and then we set up the tent outside today because it's a beautiful day. So we have some refreshments and stuff and we're all going to go outside and eat some refreshments and hang out and have some good godly fellowship together, okay? But let's close. Let's pray together here. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We conclude our meeting today, Lord God, just by saying to you, thank you. For the gospel, thank you for the gospel which is your power, Lord. Help us who have been born again to walk in the power of your Spirit, to not walk carnally, to not think carnally, to not let this uh, this factionalizing, clickishness, or any other manifestation of carnality affect our church and undermine the unity of it and undermine the power of the message we preach. Thank you for the warning and the teaching that this letter gives. Forgive us where we have fallen into these very same things. Help us to put it out of our own lives, put it out of our own church, not let it be here, and help us, Lord God, to devote ourselves to humility and love, true worship, true praise, and true service. Teach us more as we continue, Lord God, I pray, to go through this wonderful, powerful letter. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.